Chapter 21 of The Suffragette, The History of the Women's Militant Suffrage Movement by E. Sylvia Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 21. September to October, 1909. The arrest at Birmingham. Forcible feeding in Winston Green Jail. Mr. Keir Hardy's protest. Opinions of medical experts. Resignation of Mr. Brailsford and Mr. Nevinson. And now, on September 17th, the Prime Minister was going up to Birmingham to hold a meeting of 10,000 people at the Great Bingley Hall. A bower-bedecked special train was to carry the Cabinet Ministers and Members of Parliament up north straight from their duties in the House and back again. Tremendous efforts were being made to work up enthusiasm, for at this meeting, Mr. Asquith was to throw down his challenge to the House of Lords to proclaim that their power of veto should be abolished and that the will of the people should prevail. But the suffragettes were determined that, if the freedom to voice their will were to be confined to half the people alone, there should be no peace in Birmingham for the Prime Minister. Mrs. Lee and her colleagues who were organizing there began by copying the police methods so far as to address a warning to the public not to attend Mr. Asquith's meeting, as disturbances were likely to ensue, and immediately the authorities were seized with panic. A great tarpaulin stretched across the glass roof of the Bingley Hall, a tall fire escape was placed on each side of the building, and hundreds of yards of firemen's hose were laid across the roof. Wooden barriers nine feet high were erected along the station platform, and across all the leading thoroughfares in the neighborhood, whilst the ends of the streets both in front and at the back of the Bingley Hall were sealed up by barricades. Nevertheless, inside those very sealed-up streets, numbers of suffragettes had been lodging for days past, and were quietly watching the arrangements. At the same time, outside in the town, a vigorous propaganda campaign was being carried on by their comrades, and this culminated in an enthusiastic Votes for Women demonstration in the bullring the day before the great liberal meeting. When Mr. Asquith left the House of Commons for his special train, detectives and policemen hemmed him in on every side, and when he arrived at the station in Birmingham, he was smuggled to the Queen's Hotel by a back subway a quarter of a mile in length and carried up in the luggage lift. In the hotel he took his meal alone in a private room away from his guests. Though guarded by a strong escort of mounted police, he thought it wisest not to enter the hall by the entrance at which he had been expected. Meanwhile, tremendous crowds were thronging the streets and the ticket-holders were watched as closely as spies in time of war. They had to pass four barriers and were squeezed through them by a tiny gangway and then passed between the long lines of police and amid an incessant roar of, Show your ticket! The vast throngs of people who had no tickets and had only come out to see the show surged against the barriers like great human waves, and occasionally cries of, Votes for women! were greeted with deafening cheers. Inside the hall there were armies of stewards and groups of police at every turn. The meeting began by the singing of a song of freedom led by a band of trumpeters. Then the Prime Minister appeared. For years past the people have been beguiled with unfulfilled promises, he declared, but during his speech he was again and again reminded by men of the unfulfilled promises which had been made to women, and though men who interrupted him on other subjects were never interfered with, these champions of the suffragettes were, in every case, set upon with a violence which was described by onlookers as revengeful and vicious. Thirteen men were maltreated in this way. Meanwhile, amid the vast crowds outside, women were fighting for their freedom. 
Cabinet ministers had sneered at them and taunted them with not being able to use physical force. Working men have flung open the franchise door at which the ladies are scratching, Mr. John Burns had said. So now they were showing that, if they would, they could use violence, though they were determined that, at any rate as yet, they would hurt no one. Again and again they charged the barricades, one woman with a hatchet in her hand, and the friendly people always pressed forward with them. In spite of a thousand police, the first barrier was many times thrown down. Whenever a woman was arrested, the crowd struggled to secure her release, and over and over again they were successful, one woman being snatched from the constables no fewer than seven times. Inside the hall, Mr. Asquith had not only the men to contend with, for the meeting had not long been in progress, when there was a sudden sound of splintering glass, and a woman's voice was heard loudly denouncing the government. A missile had been thrown through one of the ventilators by a number of suffragettes from an open window in a house opposite. The police rushed to the house door, burst it open, and scrambled up the stairs, falling over each other in their haste to reach the women, and then dragged them down and flung them into the street where they were immediately placed under arrest. Even whilst this was happening, there burst upon the air the sound of an electric motor horn, which issued from another house nearby. Evidently there were suffragettes there too. The front door of this house was barricaded, and so also was the door of the room in which the women were but the infuriated liberal stewards forced their way through and wrested the instrument from the woman's hands. No sooner was this effected, however, than the rattling of missiles was heard on the other side of the hall, and on the roof of a house thirty feet above the street, lit up by a tall electric standard, was seen the little agile figure of Mrs. Lee, with a tall fair girl beside her, both of whom were tearing up the slates with axes, and flinging them onto the roof of the Bingley Hall and down into the road below, always, however, taking care to hit no one, and sounding a warning before throwing. The police cried to them to stop, and angry stewards came rushing out of the hall to second this demand, but the women calmly went on with their work. A ladder was produced, and the men prepared to mount it, but the only reply was a warning to be careful, and all present felt that discretion was the better part of valor. Then the fire hose was dragged forward, but the firemen refused to turn it on, and so the police themselves played it on the women until they were drenched to the skin. The slates had now become terribly slippery, and the women were in great danger of sliding from the steep roof, but they had already taken off their shoes and so contrived to retain a foothold, and without intermission they continued firing slates. Finding that water had no power to subdue them, their opponents retaliated by throwing bricks and stones up at the two women, but instead of trying, as they had done to avoid hitting, the men took good aim at them, and soon blood was running down the face of the tall girl, Charlotte Marsh, and both had been struck several times. At last Mr. Asquith had said his say and came hurrying out of the building. A slate was hurled at the back of his car as it drove away, and then firing ceased from the roof where the cabinet minister was gone. Seeing that they had now nothing to fear, the police at once placed a ladder against the house and scrambled up to bring the suffragettes down, and then, without allowing them to put on their shoes, they marched them through the streets in their stockinged feet, the blood streaming from their wounds and their wet garments clinging to their limbs. At the police station bail was refused, and the two women were sent to the cells to pass the night in their drenched clothing. Meanwhile, amid the hooting of the crowd, Mr. Asquith had driven away through the town, and as the special train in which he was to return to London left the station, a shower of small stones rattled against his carriage window, whilst a great bar of iron was flung into an empty compartment in the rear. 
the two women who had done these things were at once seized by the police and were also obliged to pass the night in the cells, whilst six who had been arrested in the crowd earlier met the same fate. Eventually, eight of the women received sentences of imprisonment varying from one month to fourteen days, whilst Charlotte Marsh was sent to prison for three months' hard labor, and Mrs. Lee for four. We knew that Mrs. Lee and her comrades in the Birmingham prison would carry out the hunger strike, and on the following Friday, September 24th, reports appeared in the press that the government had resorted to the horrible expedient of feeding them by force by means of a tube passed into the stomach. Filled with concern, the Committee of the Women's Social and Political Union at once applied, both to the prison and to the Home Office, to know if this were true, but all information was refused. The WSPU now made inquiries as to the probable results of this treatment, and were informed that it was liable to cause laceration of the throat and grave and permanent injury to the digestive functions, and that, especially if the patient should resist as the tube was being inserted or withdrawn, there was serious danger of its going astray and penetrating the lungs or some other vital part. The whole operation, together with all the attendant circumstances, could not fail to put a most excessive strain upon the heart and the entire nervous system, and if there were any heart weakness, death might ensue at any moment. In the Lancet for September 28, 1872, a case was reported of a man under sentence of death who had been forcibly fed by means of the stomach pump, that is to say by means of an India rubber tube passed through the mouth into the stomach, the method used in the case of the suffragettes. The man had died. In the same issue of The Lancet appeared the opinion upon this question of several prominent medical men. Dr. Anderson Moxie, M.D., M.R.C.P., had said, If anyone were to ask me to name the worst possible treatment for suicidal starvation, I should say unhesitatingly, forcible feeding by means of the stomach pump. Dr. Tennant stated that this method of feeding produced an incentive to resistance, and that the exhaustion thereby introduced was sometimes so great as to cause death by syncope. Dr. Russell had met with a case in which death had occurred immediately after placing of the tube, before it could be withdrawn, much less used, and Dr. Connolly was appalled by the dangers resulting from the forcible administration of food by the mouth. Amongst the various important medical experts consulted by the Women's Social and Political Union was Dr. Forbes Winslow, whose wide experience in cases of insanity could not be questioned. When asked professionally to give his views on the subject, he said, So far as the stomach pump is concerned, it is an instrument I have long ago discontinued using, even in the most serious cases of melancholia where the victim, perhaps from some religious delusion, refuses all nourishment. It possibly may be regarded by some as the most simple means of administering food, but this I challenge by saying at once that it is the most complicated and the most dangerous. I have known some of the most serious injuries inflicted by the persistent use of the stomach pump. I have known a case in which the tongue had been partly bitten off or it has been twisted behind the feeding tube. He added that forcible feeding was especially dangerous in cases of heart or lung weakness or of rupture or hernia, and that the result of persistent use would be to seriously injure the constitution, to lacerate the parts surrounding the mouth, to break and ruin the teeth. When the House of Commons met on Monday, we learnt that our fears were only too well founded for Mr. Keir Hardy drew from Mr. Masterman, who spoke on the Home Secretary's behalf, the admission that the suffragettes in Winston Green Jail were being forcibly fed by means of a tube which was passed through the mouth and into the stomach, and through which the food was pumped.
The unprecedented and outrageous nature of the assault was glossed over by the use of the term hospital treatment in connection with it. Mr. Masterman admitted, however, that there were no regulations which authorized the proceeding, but he stated that it was resorted to in the case of men and women prisoners who were weak-minded or contumacious. Mr. Hardy's indignant protest and reminder that the last man prisoner to whom such treatment had been meted out had died under it were met with shouts of laughter by the supporters of the government. Horrified by their heartless and unseemly levity in the face of so serious a question, he at once addressed a statement to the press in which he declared that he could not have believed that a body of gentlemen could have found reason for mirth and applause in a scene which had no parallel in the recent history of our country. As far as he could learn, no power to feed by force had been given to prison authorities, save in the case of persons certified to be insane. He concluded by warning the public of the danger that one of the prisoners would succumb to the so-called hospital treatment, and by appealing to the people of these islands to speak out ere our annals had been stained by such a tragedy. Others hastened to second this protest. Mr. C. Mansell Moulin, M.D., F.R.C.S., wrote to the Times, as a hospital surgeon of thirty years' standing, to indignantly repudiate Mr. Masterman's use of the term hospital treatment, declaring that it was a foul libel for that violence and brutality have no place in hospitals, as Mr. Masterman ought to know. Dr. Forbes Ross of Harley Street wrote to the press, saying, as a medical man without any particular feeling for the cause of the suffragettes, I consider that forcible feeding by the methods employed is an act of brutality beyond common endurance, and I am astounded that it is possible for members of Parliament, with mothers, wives, and sisters of their own, to allow it. A memorial signed by 116 doctors, headed by Sir Victor Horsley, F.R.C.S., W. Hugh Fenton, M.D., M.A., C. Mansell Mullen, M.D., F.R.C.S., Forbes Winslow, M.D., and Alexander Haig, M.D., F.R.C.P., was organized by Dr. Flora Murray and addressed to Mr. Asquith, protesting against the artificial feeding of the suffragette prisoners on the ground that it was attended by the gravest risks and was both unwise and inhuman. To this memorial, many of the doctors added descriptive notes of their own. Mr. W. A. Davidson, M.D., F.R.C.S., wrote, a most cruel and brutal procedure. Were the tubes clean? Were they new? If not, they have probably been used for people suffering from some disease. The inside of the tube cannot well be cleaned. Very often the trouble is not taken to clean them. Note 40. In spite of every form of discouragement and ridicule, Mr. Keir Hardy continued constantly to raise the question of forcible feeding in the House of Commons, only to be met by evasive and sometimes grossly inaccurate replies from the Home Office. Mr. Gladstone tried to shelter himself behind the officials who were his subordinates, and to place the responsibility on the medical officers. For this he was strongly condemned by the British Medical Journal, which characterized his conduct as contemptible. Note 41. In reply to the protests of medical men and the memorial from doctors which had been addressed to him, Mr. Gladstone succeeded in drawing a statement from Sir Richard Douglas Powell, the president of the Royal College of Physicians, who said that he thought the memorial exaggerated, though he admitted that forcible feeding was not wholly free from possibilities of accident with those who resist. He added that in dissenting from the view expressed by the memorialists, he was assuming that the feeding of the prison patients was entirely carried out by skilled nursing attendants under careful medical observation and control. 
we of course know that this was not the case a large number of doctors including dr r g layton physician to the walsall hospital replied to sir douglas powell by again recapitulating the dangers of forcible feeding but indeed the opinions of medical men were unnecessary to those who afterwards came in contact with the woman who had been forcibly fed their exhausted condition was a form of evidence that no argument could upset it is important to note also that during the year nineteen ten two ordinary criminals a man and a woman were subjected to forcible feeding the man died during the first operation the woman committed suicide after the second meanwhile the bulk of the liberal press were defending the action of their government the daily news had acclaimed vera figner for assaulting one of the russian prison officials in order to secure better conditions for her fellow-captives it had characterized as the one healthy symptom in spain the revolt of the spanish people against their government in regard to the riffian war though this revolt had entailed the burning down of convents full of women and children who were in no way responsible for the trouble and other dread acts of violence at the same time in regard to events at home this paper was declaring that if the house of lords were to tamper with the irish land bill there would be no wonder if all the old methods of cattle driving and other violence were revived in ireland yet the daily news had had nothing but chiding and dispraise for the hunger strikers and in regard to forcible feeding it now said it is the only alternative to allowing the women to starve themselves thus the two most obvious ways out of the difficulty firstly that of treating the women as political prisoners and secondly the more reasonable one of extending the franchise to women and thus ending the strife were entirely ignored revolted by the hypocritical and inconsistent attitude of this paper two of its foremost leader writers and of the ablest journalists in the country mr henry nevinson and mr h n brailsford resigned their posts upon its staff writing publicly to explain their reasons for so doing many sincere liberals resigned their memberships and official posts under the liberal association including the rev j m lloyd thomas minister of the high pavement chapel nottingham resigned from the liberal association and there were many other resignations amongst them the following mrs catherine c osier the president miss gertrude e southall the honourable secretary and mrs alice yoxall the treasurer of the birmingham women's liberal association mrs s reed the chairman of the eggbeston women's liberal association lady blake the president of the berwick women's liberal association and mrs branch one of the most prominent members of the northampton women's liberal association at the same time prominent men and women of all shades of opinion including mrs ayrton flora annie steele lady betty balfour the rev j r campbell and the hon h b t strangeways ex-premier of south australia appealed to the government to give votes to women and bring this useless warfare to an end meanwhile except for the admissions of mr gladstone and mr masterman in the house of commons nothing definite was known as to the condition of the outraged prisoners no direct communication had been held with them and even a petition from their parents and relatives to be allowed to send their own medical attendant into the prison had been refused the fearful anxiety and suspense endured by all concerned may well be imagined again and again messrs hatchett jones bisgood and marshall the solicitors engaged to act on the prisoner's behalf applied for permission to interview their clients but mr gladstone obstinately refused until he was informed that legal proceedings were being taken for assault against him and the governor and doctor of the birmingham prison 
and that writs were being issued, and that Miss Laura Ainsworth would shortly be released so that the full details would be known in any case. Thus, at last, he grudgingly consented to the interview, and sworn statements were made by all the women. Mrs. Lee explained that on arriving at Winston Green Jail on Wednesday, September 22nd, she had broken her cell windows as a protest against the prison treatment. As a punishment, she was thrust that evening into a cold, dimly lit punishment cell. A plank bed was brought in and she was forcibly stripped and handcuffed with the hands behind during the day, except at meal times when the palms were placed together in front. At night, the hands were fastened in front with the palms out. Potatoes, bread and gruel were brought into her cell on Thursday, but she did not touch them, and in the afternoon she was taken still handcuffed before the magistrates, who sentenced her to a further nine days in the punishment cell. At midnight on Thursday, her wrists being terribly swollen and painful, the handcuffs were removed. She still refused food, and on Saturday she was taken to the doctor's room. Here is her account of the affair. The doctor said, You must listen carefully to what I have to say. I have my orders from my superior officers. He had a blue official paper in his hand to which he referred, that you are not to be released even on medical grounds. If you still refrain from food, I must take other measures to compel you to take it. I then said, I refuse, and if you force food on me, I want to know how you are going to do it. He said, That is a matter for me to decide. I said that he must prove that I was insane, that the lunacy commissioners would have to be summoned to prove that I was insane. I declared that forcible feeding was an operation, and therefore could not be performed without a sane patient's consent. He merely bowed and said, Those are my orders. She was then surrounded and held down whilst the chair was tilted backwards. She clenched her teeth, but the doctor pulled her mouth away to form a pouch, and the wardress poured in milk and brandy, some of which trickled in through the crevices. Later in the day, the doctors and wardresses again appeared. They forced her down onto the bed and held her there. One of the doctors then produced a tube two yards in length, with a glass junction in the center and a funnel at one end. He forced the other end of the tube up her nostril, hurting her so terribly that the matron and two of the wardresses burst into tears, and the second doctor interfered. At last the tube was pushed down into the stomach. She felt the pain of it to the end of the breastbone. Then one of the doctors stood upon a chair holding the funnel end of the tube at arm's length and poured food down whilst the wardresses and the other doctor all gripped her tight. She felt as though she would suffocate. There was a rushing, burning sensation in her head. The drums of her ears seemed to be bursting. The agony of pain in the throat and breastbone continued. The thing seemed to go on for hours. When at last the tube was withdrawn, she felt as though all the back of her nose and throat were being torn out with it. Then, almost fainting, she was carried back to the punishment cell and put to bed. For hours the pain in her chest, nose, and ears continued, and she felt terribly sick and faint. Day after day the struggle continued. She used no violence but each time resisted and was overcome by force of numbers. Often she vomited during the operation. When the food did not go down quickly enough, the doctor pinched her nose with the tube in it, causing her even greater pain. On Tuesday afternoon she heard Miss Edwards, one of her fellow prisoners, cry from an open doorway opposite. Locked in a padded cell since Sunday. Then the door was shut. 
She applied to see the visiting magistrates and appealed to them on behalf of her comrade, saying that she knew her to have a weak heart, but was told that no prisoner could interfere on another's behalf. She protested by breaking the windows of the hospital cell to which, owing to her weakness, she had now been taken, and was then thrust into the padded cell as Miss Edwards was taken from it, the bed which she had occupied being still warm. The padded cell was lined with some india-rubber-like stuff, and she felt as though she would suffocate for want of air. She was kept there till Wednesday, still being fed by force. On Saturday she felt that she could endure the agony of it no longer, and determined to barricade her cell. She piled up her bed and chair, but after three hours men warders forced the door open with spades. Then the chief warder threatened and abused her, and she was dragged back to the padded cell. In Miss Ainsworth's case, the feeding was done through the mouth. Her jaws were pried open with a steel instrument to allow of the gag being placed between her teeth. She experienced great sickness, especially when the tube was being withdrawn. Miss Hilda Burkett's experiences were very dreadful. She had already fasted four days and was extremely weak when she was seized by two doctors, four wardresses and the matron who tried for more than half an hour to force her to swallow from the feeding cup. Then a tube was forced up her nose, but she succeeded in coughing it back twice, and at last, very near collapse, she was carried to her cell and put to bed by the wardresses. "'This will kill me sooner than starving,' she said. "'I cannot stand much more of it, but I am proud you have not beaten me yet.' Still suffering greatly in head, nose, and throat, she was left alone for half an hour, and the matron and wardresses then returned to persuade her to take food. On her refusal, they said, well, you will have to come again. They are waiting. Oh, surely not the torture chamber again, she cried, but they lifted her out of bed and carried her back to the doctors, who again attempted to force her to drink from the feeding cup. Still, she was able to resist, and then one of them said, The home office has given me every power to use what force I like. I am going to use the stomach pump. It is illegal and an assault. I shall prosecute you was her reply, but as she spoke a gag was forced into her mouth and the tube followed. She had almost fainted and felt as if she were going to die, and now for some reason the tube was withdrawn without having been used, but in her great weakness the officials were now able to overcome her resistance and to pour liquid into her mouth with the feeding cup. This sort of thing went on day after day. On Thursday morning she was unconscious when they came into her cell, and they succeeded in feeding her. During the night she was in agony. She told the doctor he had given her too much food, and she cried. For mercy's sake, let me be. I am too tired. But Brandy and Benger's food were forcibly administered. During the whole month she only slept four nights. But the story of these sufferings had no power to influence the government. They were determined to persevere with the forcible feeding, and were so far from abandoning this hateful form of torture that, evidently thinking the women who had won their way out of prison by the hunger strike had been let off too easily, they proceeded to rearrest a number of them upon the most flimsy charges. Evelyn Worry, who had been arrested with Mrs. Lee and the others, but afterwards discharged by the magistrate, had been refused bail between the time of her arrest and trial and kept for seventeen hours as an ordinary prisoner in the insanitary police court cells. She might have been thought, therefore, to be entitled to claim damages for wrongful arrest and detention, but was nevertheless rearrested because she had broken the cell window to obtain more air, 
and was sentenced either to pay a fine of eleven shillings or go to prison for seven days. She chose imprisonment, but her fine was paid by a member of the Birmingham Liberal Club. Miss Rona Robinson, Miss Florence Clarkson, Miss Georgina Healis, and Miss Bertha Brewster, who had all gone through the hunger strike in Liverpool, were also summoned for breaking their cell windows, in spite of the fact that they had already been severely punished in prison for these offences. On their refusal to answer the summons, warrants were issued for their arrest. Rona Robinson, who was said to have committed damage to the extent of two shillings, was arrested on October 15th in Manchester and was taken the same night to Liverpool. Though her doctor had certified her to be suffering from laryngeal catarrh and a weak irregular action of the heart, she was sent to prison for fourteen days' imprisonment in the third division. Owing to the state of her health, the Liverpool authorities refused to take the responsibility of feeding her by force, and she was accordingly released after a fast of seventy-two hours. The other warrants were not executed for some time, that against Miss Florence Clarkson being held over until December, when she happened to notify the Manchester police of a burglary that had taken place in the WSPU offices in that city. She was then immediately arrested on the old charge. Bail was refused, and she was kept in custody from Saturday to Monday, when she was punished by a further fortnight's imprisonment for having committed damage to the value of half a shilling three months before. After three days, on December 15th, she was released in a state of complete collapse. The warrant against Miss Bertha Brewster was held over until January, when she was sentenced to six weeks' hard labor to pay for her 3.9 damage. Footnotes Note 40 Mr. Gladstone afterwards stated in the house that the tubes were carefully cleaned and kept in boracic solution between each operation, but Miss Dorothy Pethick, who was imprisoned in Newcastle, saw the tube lying open and exposed in a basket in the reception room. Note 41 The British Journal of Nursing stated that even under the most favorable circumstances, forcible feeding required delicate manipulation and that it was an operation which should only be performed by medical practitioners or trained nurses, and pointed out that the prison wardresses were quite unqualified to take part in it. End of chapter 21